Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R and listening to an hour of science that we've got for you. We are going to have some great discussions today. We're talking about Antarctica for most of the show. A couple of guests who've just been uh, down there at Casey Station collecting all sorts of stuff and data that will be coming up soon. We've got some news up front, and then uh, Chris KP is going to talk us through some stuff. Good morning, sir. You're in the studio, in the yes, flesh. Yes. I might turn your microphone on. It's even better that way. Yes, I uh, I, I sound even less <laughs> terrible when my microphone's on, so thank you. You're very welcome. And we've got Dr. Lauren on the line coming live to us from her closet. Exactly, I am indeed. I think the closet gets messier each time, actually. I've got to work on that. Uh, no, we've just learned you've got a couch in there. We don't know what's going on. It's an enormous closet, a walk-in. Exactly. I have two young children, Dr. Shane. This is where I hang out. This is my retreat. <laughs> Do they know it's here? Is it, is, is it hidden behind a secret wall or something? Yeah. Is that, it seems like that. <laughs> yeah. Room nine and three yeah. quarters. Well, she's, she's an eye specialist, so it's probably some sort of retinal recognition system that, and a panel sort of, you know, you Just have to, poor children. Even their husband can't get in. <laughs> uh, I love that idea. <laughs> Whoops. And lives in the studio doing our Twitter feed all masked up. She's such a good girl. Um, still getting over some little virus she had recently, but she's doing well. <laughs> Yeah, you're doing, you're doing good. Liv's doing good. Um, so if you're not following us already on Twitter, folks, uh, get on there because Liv usually tweets out a lot of the details of the show for us, which she has been doing for, I don't know, about 10 years or something. It's been – how long has it been, Liv? Uh, oh, I'd say about 10 years. About yeah. 10 years. I remember when you I first – about 15. I'm yeah. Nearly 27, so maybe a bit longer. Yeah, I remember when you first came in because you, your dad would drop you off. And now, <laughs> yeah. now you're the one dropping your dad off places. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, things, yeah. things have changed. Anyway, let's get going on some news. Uh, Dr. Lauren, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I'd love to. So, look, well, the reason I'm calling you from my cupboard is because I took my son for his second COVID vax this morning, which is why I couldn't be there in person. So, very proud of him. But, um, you know, it was that really nice feeling this morning of, you know, how far we've come with science, with vaccinations. But one of the challenges that's going to come up is really delivery of vaccinations as we move forward. So, um, as obviously, at the moment, we use hypodermic needles to give the vaccinations. And that uses positive pressure. So, basically, the needle goes into your arm and then they press the plunger down to push the vaccination into the body. But one of the tricks with some of the new uh, technologies coming out is that the vaccinations will be thicker. And so one of them um, is that if they're going to be using DNA therapeutics, for example, apparently the, the solutions are a bit more viscous. Mm. And so that technique won't work quite as well. And so there's been quite a bit of work into different delivery mechanisms. And I know of groups here in Australia that are working um, on nasal delivery. So basically, like, you know, similar to a sinus medication, you just actually spray it up your nose to get the vaccination to your body. But this week at the American Physical Society meeting, there was a really interesting presentation on giving vaccinations through tattooing, which really appealed to me. So the um, I didn't never realised this. So I assumed that tattoos were the same as like a hypodermic needle. I thought that the ink was actually pushed into the skin, but it's actually not. What actually happens with a tattoo is that the needle obviously goes in and out of the skin very quickly, about 200 jabs per second. But as the needle comes out of 
the tissue, it actually creates a vacuum and the ink gets sucked in. So mm. that's why the tattoo artist, obviously, if you've ever had a tattoo or watched someone get one done, they're wiping the ink off quite a lot because the ink's actually on top of the skin and it's getting sucked in through, through this sort of vacuum. So this particular research group uh, in the US looked at doing a similar sort of thing for vaccination. So whether or not you could use a drug um, and basically use lots of small pinpricks on the surface of the skin to draw it into the tissue. And so very early days still. So they're at the stage of looking at the fluid dynamics. They've been taking lots of high speed videos of, of the process to work out how to do it. But it's a potential. So one day we might get a tattoo that shows that we've been vaccinated. Yeah, uh, no, I mean, uh, I suppose, you know, it depends what the tattoo was, you know. Um, <laughs> but um, you could have something that was reasonably cool, I think. That, you could, uh, and it would build up over time, over your life. You'd end yeah. up with, like, you know, yeah. a, a sleeve or whatever. Yeah, yeah, whole sleeve of tattoos. I know at the moment, you know, uh, I've seen a few people that complain, you know, we might have to get a fourth do- a fourth dose. You know, what's going on? I'm yeah. thinking, God, I think I'm on like number 17 for the flu. Yeah, um, yeah. I, honestly. <laughs> it's not a big yeah. deal. Um, obviously, yeah, we're going to keep it. adapting and stay in front, you know, and I think uh, one of the sad parts about uh, this virus is, unlike humans, it doesn't tire you know, people get tired. I'm tired <laughs> yeah. of these things. I'm yeah, tired of them. Yeah. Guess what, folks? The yeah. <laughs> SARS-CoV-2, it is a stayer. doesn't get tired, um, sadly. Great stamina. <laughs> Thank you, uh, okay. Dr. Lauren. Um, whenever you start talking about needles, I, we should put a, a sort of precautionary warning. Some people a warning. <laughs> I, you know, I used to be terrified of needles when I was a child and then um, had a medical incident where I ended up getting a, a lot in one go. And it kind of, you know, sadly, it kind of, it's been downhill since then. It hasn't bothered me as much. But at the time, it, yeah. You know, yeah, I went through that phase. I think a lot of people have, and they never come out of it. And it's quite – It is. We forget it is about fascinating, it. fascinating, We forget about it. You do, you do. And it is fascinating. So my son, you know, again, had his vaccination this morning, got home, and then promptly told my husband that it was the other arm that got injected. <laughs> so it really oh. intrigues me. So, you know, it's yeah. obviously – it doesn't actually hurt people long to, you know, at all, yeah. really. It's just the, the idea mm. of the people. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know. Sharp objects coming at my body. Listen, that's that's like the it. one thing to note about the the tattoo idea is that, of course, as as Lauren was saying, you know, two hundred pricks a second in your arm, it does hurt. So it's not like that bit's gone yeah. away. So we're still yeah. going to be stabbing you with something repeatedly. Yeah, <laughs> you just get a happy face <laughs> on your arm afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> I got two two words for you, Lauren. Oral oral delivery. <laughs> can we? Get, yeah. Can we yes, get well, to oral get delivery? The, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be well, nice. I'm, I'm intrigued with the. The nasal stuff's very cool too, yeah, I think. Like, yeah. that's a really interesting idea too. So I, lots, lots of very smart people working on it. Absolutely. I think nasal delivery of so many medications is so underdone. Um, there's so many mm. good options for that that we often don't think about because it, it gets into you so fast. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. often, especially if it's anything to do with your head, it actually goes exactly where you need it to go quickly. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. We digress away from uh, what we are talking about, which was just, you know, n- new needles. Chris KP. No, that's okay. Uh, speaking of heads, voles have heads. Uh, yes. <laughs> thank you. For, thank you for hanging in there with me. I um, see. Uh, just to all to all the listeners, I, I promise you'll learn something new every week. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, that's not it. Yeah. Uh, but if you're if you're not familiar with voles, that's totally cool. They're they're little mm. mammals. They're quite cute in their own way. They can be pests, but you know we're mammals and we can be pests too. That's just part of the territory, mm. I think. Um, th- so Brant's voles in particular, uh, they hang out in sort of. Uh, uh, sort of Arctic grasslands, sort of sort of Mongolia, Russia, northern China zone, um, 
and they again they look cute but they can be pests there as well but you know understanding how they what they do and what what triggers their behavior is of great interest to scientists yeah. of course yeah. and what they've discovered is that they do gardening deal with this okay, okay. they they eat parts they eat some of the the um aerial parts of plants and the roots because they borrow so they eat both ends what they don't eat is this really thick bunch grass that grows where they are they hang out in it but they don't eat it hmm. but they do trim it oh they trim it oh yes yes they do <laughs> and it turns out the reason that they trim the hedge so to speak is because um it makes it easy for them to see shrikes this is birds that would eat them and so they trim it down and they go, oh, I can see them coming further away and then they can hide. What's intriguing about that is that when they do this, when there's lots of shrikes around, they go mm. nuts with it. They just, it's just, uh, it's topiary, um, I suppose. But then the shrikes, of course, stop going there because like, well, there's nothing to see here. I can't catch anything. Mm. And then when the shrikes go away again, they stop cutting the grass. The Whoa. voles just go, it can grow back up again. They actually put nets over the area to stop the shrikes going there. And the voles went, oh, this is much easier. <laughs> We'll, yeah, just, we'll just we'll leave it growing. It's fine, uh, but yeah, once they let the birds back, uh, <laughs> it's bizarre stuff. I, I love it. It's so good. It's because it's such an easy thing for them. It's like we we recognise the risk. We have a response. We're not going to waste our time doing it if there isn't a risk. Yeah, it is that simple. There you go. So I'm going to get some of these in my backyard, <laughs> including the risk, and, and then scare them. <laughs> yeah, scare birds. Them. Yeah. yeah. Hey, cut that grass. Come on. <laughs> You can do it. Yeah. God, that's amazing, isn't it? I, I like the fact that they don't eat it. They just cut it. Yeah. Like, it's um, that's a weird, yeah, weird part. Anyway, look, uh, I wanted to mention to you guys and to everyone out there in Radio Land uh, that the Artemis One spacecraft has left the building, uh, as it were. And I'm talking about the vehicle assembly building that NASA has. You know that giant big cube that you've probably seen mm-hmm. Not yes. far from the, the main launch site. Yes. And it's where they essentially assemble the rockets. You know, they assemble them. And what happens is, you know, in fact, I've heard that there's sort of weather in there. It's so big. This really? It's so big. And it's, it's the same. So it's, and it's the same building that they used to assemble the um, Apollo rockets back in the 60s. And it is just enormous, you know, like because these rockets mm. are, you know, over 300 feet tall, they are big (laughs) (laughs) and you need a big building because otherwise you're kind of working outside which you you don't want to be doing so so they've got this enormous building this vehicle assembly building and the thing i love about this thing is on the front of it are two um i just call them garage doors basically but they're two roll (laughs) they're two roller doors as far as i can tell and so they're the full so think about that you know a building that's i don't know the exact height of the building it's probably about 400 feet but it has a roller door yeah (laughs) that covers (laughs) the whole side of it and they're presumably electronic Oh yeah, yeah. Or is there so. an army of people that have to push them open and turn, close? <laughs> like pull, the, pull the rope? We need an intern quickly. <laughs> yeah, some guy pulling the rope after he's rung the bell. Um, no, and so, but what they do, and this is a part that's that's quite phenomenal, is of course they assemble the rocket in the vehicle assembly building, which makes sense. But then when it's ready, they have to get it out and they have to get mm. it to the launch pad, mm. which is you know about four miles away, not not so far away. But to do that, they bring in what they call the crawler. And this is essentially, I like to think of it as a a spaceship tugboat, but it is basically this big platform on wheels that moves very, very slowly, hence the name. Yes, yes. And (laughs) they drive this thing under the rocket, and then that picks it up, and then they drive it to the launch pad. And it takes over 10 hours to get to the launch pad because it goes so slow. And so what they did this week is they moved the new space launch vehicle, so that the, um, the Artemis um, craft basically this is the i'm not going to say replacement because it's not quite the right term but it's like the new version of the apollo rocket sure 
And that will then take um, humans back to the moon and eventually on onto Mars. Mm. And it will be launching this year for the first time without um, a crew. So they'll do a, a launch that will go around the moon that will come back and make sure everything's working. Mm-hmm. But it's a spectacular-looking rocket. Mm. If, you, if you look at it, it looks like the Apollo rockets. Cool. But it looks like someone grabbed the, um, the solid boosters yes, from yes. the side of the space shuttle and stuck them on the side. Oh, so it's wow. like so it's a big rocket in the middle with two boosters on the yeah, side. Nice. Yes. Um, it's quite quite extraordinary looking, but they they roll it out with great fanfare. And I, I liked a few too many of these pictures on my my Twitter <laughs> thread. And as a result, now all I'm seeing in my Twitter timeline are pictures of this rocket. Like so when, yeah. when you say they rolled it out to quite a fanfare, do you mean they literally had a thing rolling out of the B roller doors? And yeah, that's a it's yeah, a yeah. ten hour event. Yeah, yeah. So it takes it takes a long time, there and they they take it to. Wow. The launch uh, location, um, which is the same launch a lot of the Apollo yeah. um, craft went from, and essentially what they do is it's, it's essentially a dress rehearsal. Mm. So they fuel it, they do a countdown, they do everything. The only thing they really do, I mean, it's a lot of things they don't do, obviously, like ignite the fuel, <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't take off. But they do all the other aspects so of the, what a real countdown would look like. the rocket stays there now, doesn't it? Yeah. They don't put it back in the building. I don't believe so. That would be very exhausting. Yeah, I don't believe they take it back, but, okay. um, but they could. Yeah, well, of course, yeah. they've I got mean, a crawler. I, I, and I, I just have the image of, you know, because some, someone's driving this thing, you know, and <laughs> it could, to be honest, it could be 10 people driving this thing. I'm not, I'm not sure how many people drive the crawler, mm. but can you imagine that? Like, sometimes we complain about, you know, speed limits and stuff, but driving that thing would be like, imagine I'm, driving, I'm a, you imagine know, you'd want some music. Imagine you'd, driving it through, a, like, a school zone. <laughs> well, you'd want, you'd want some kind of, you'd need some kind of background music just to keep you awake. Like, if you're driving yeah, this, a 10-hour trip? Yeah, because if you tuned out you, and you found out that you'd slowly be going more and more off oh, course, it'd be yeah. very... Because yeah. it's a long way back, right? Well, it's not to mention the fact you could see your destination, right? Yeah. I mean, this is like you start in Melbourne and you drive up the coast to Sydney and it takes you 10 hours. Sure. And you understand that because yeah. it's a long way. Yeah. But you see the, the pad's just over there. I could run over myself now. I could, I could go over there, get a coffee and come back yeah. without... Having to change the direction of this thing, you know, like I could just sort of strap the the, the steering wheel with my belt and hope for the best. I, sus- I suspect that's either going to be why you don't get a job driving it, or why you do get a job driving it. This guy can multitask. I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, suffice it to say, um, this amazing rocket. Look it up, folks. Um, just look up Artemis One, and you'll find all sorts of pictures of it. The Space Launch System, the SLS, um, is now on the pad as they say, and uh, it looks spectacular. Do not, do not by any uh, circumstances, look at the bill. <laughs> that, will, that will freak you out. But um, look, you know, we can go into that on another day. Anyway, folks, we're going to take a break for some uh, important station announcements, and we'll be back very soon with our first guest for today. Thank you, Dr. Lauren. Good to chat to you. We'll see you a little bit later in the show. That's good. All righty. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. On the line now with us, we have our two guests for today. We have Dr. Felicity McCormick, who is a senior lecturer and Antarctic researcher at Monash University. And we also have Crystal Randall, almost a doctor, like so close, so very close, who is also a lecturer at the University of Wollongong and part of Antarctic, uh, an Antarctic researcher for the Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future Group. Welcome both. How are you going? Well, thank you. Yeah, good. Thanks, Shane. Uh, Crystal, let me just ask you, how long before you're a fully-fledged uh, doctor and you can do what most people do and just get it on their credit card straight away? 
<laughs> um, I wish I could claim it now, but I'm, a, I'm about a month away from submitting my thesis and then um, I'll have to wait for reviewers' comments and things. But yeah, not, not too far away. Right. A month away from submitting your thesis, I have to say a huge thank you for giving up time to talk to us because I'm sure you're kind of... <laughs> You're in the. You must be in that sort of pseudo giving up, still hanging in there, half dead stage of uh, thesis writing. Yeah, like three quarters dead. Don't really care anymore. Um, <laughs> and happy, happy to be on the radio to procrastinate. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. We'll take up twenty minutes of your time. We can waste that for you, no problem. Um, Felicity, I want to sort of start with you because you're both doing amazing work, and you've you've both recently been to Antarctica, which let me just you know convey my incredible envy. Um, haven't <laughs> haven't been, but seen lots of, lots of pictures. Um, but one day, one day it will happen. You're you're looking at something that. I mean, I don't even know how you do this day to day, but looking at some of the ice sheets and, and modelling what's going on there, um, give us an idea first of which of which of Antarctica's components are you are you focused on? Yeah, so Shane, we we know that Antarctica obviously is under threat from climate change and from human activity, um, and you mentioned safe securing Antarctica's environmental future. So that's a seven year um, mm. program that's. Um, sponsored by the Australian Research Council. And, and what we're investigating as part of SAFE is both the physical changes that are occurring in Antarctica, um, but also changes to biodiversity and ecology and, and developing um, ways to forecast and manage those changes. And so a major kind of theme is about um, developing tools, so data to decision support tools that will feed into policy um, and hopefully um, make a real impact in how we protect Antarctica's future. And so my work is um, actually, as part of the fieldwork that we we went down to Antarctica for, um, my work's focused around trying to understand changes to vulnerable glaciers and um, predict how um, these glaciers might contribute to sea level rise in the future. Mm. So which one Which one do you, do you look at, one in particular or, or a lot of them? <laughs> yeah, so my, my day-to-day really involves running what are called ice sheet models. So I'm an ice sheet modeler and someone once joked, um, oh, I'm really jealous you can use those chain scores to sculpt um, big ice sculptures in museums. I'm like, not, not quite the same thing. Um, <laughs> basically, <laughs> mathematical tools that, that predict how um, glaciers respond to climate change and climate variability. I've focused on a lot of different areas, but as part of um, SAFE and as part of this fieldwork that we've been involved in, I've been focusing on the band glacier. So it's a it's a, a glacier pretty much directly south of Perth, Western Australia, um, and it's a really important glacier because it drains uh, an area of East Antarctica that's very vulnerable to climate change. So mm-hmm. that whole region in East Antarctica contains enough ice that if it were to all melt, we'd see about seven metres of global sea level rise, um, which, you know, that's not going to happen in the near future, but we want to understand what kind of conditions could um, really impact the vulnerability of that region through the Banff Glacier. And when you're trying to model something like a glacier, what, what sort of things go into that model? Because I can imagine you have scenarios where it's the, the thickness, the the range, but also what's under it and how yeah. – I'm not sure if I should use the word slippery, but, you know, I, I know sometimes you, know, you get water and fissures and stuff going down under these things which kind of lubricates their movement. I mean, I mean, what, what sort of things go into your, into your modelling? Because it seems like – you know, modelling the weather is hard. This, this to me seems sort of equally complex in terms of just how much stuff goes into working out how a glacier moves. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a really excellent question. Um, I think, thankfully, because the ice is relatively slow, we don't have to worry about some of those complex things that they worry about with ocean or abstract modelling like mm. turbulence. Um, but, yes, yeah, slipperiness is a big factor. So, basically, our models take into account the physical environment. So, we want to know um, the extent of the glacier, so where it meets the ocean, um, we want to know um, the, the, its surface elevation, how fast it's flowing. But you mentioned a really key aspect, which is the topography. So just as like on non-icy covered land, um, the topography really guides where rivers flow in Antarctica. The, the topography plays a really big role in guiding where the glaciers flow and how um, how sensitive they are to ocean and atmospheric warming, like how they will retreat or advance um, and slipperiness as well like a lot of people don't realize but yeah there's a whole subglacial hydrological network mm. under the ice sheet so we have rivers and lakes and um, like sheets of water and they play a really important role in um, how quickly the ice flows uh, so we have to take that into account and obviously you know we can't physically observe what's under four kilometres of ice um, so we have to make inferences from um, different um, really nifty measurements that we take of, of what's happening at the surface yeah uh, look it's it's certainly interesting the way you know how much you can model with these complex systems now i understand while yeah. you were down there you were collecting certain rocks and so forth because i mean my immediate thought when i was reading your information is you're a modeling person how did you get the ticket to go down there you know, how, how did, you know <laughs> so so tell us about that what what sort of stuff did you do while you were down there because it's i mean it's a it's an amazing thing to be able to go down there and to see what you're actually been modeling firsthand but you you collected some samples as well yes um yeah, so I, I am a modeler, but I'm very fortunate that I've been able to go down a few times now and um, have done a, a range of different things. Um, but this time, because our focus really is on the Vanderford over the next seven years, we want to build up a really strong picture of um, both how the Vanderford Glacier is currently changing, how it's changed in the past, um, so we can make better predictions of how it will change in the future. Mm. And so um, this particular little package of work is um, something that my colleague Richard Jones, who I was down with, um, is an expert in, and it's all about what are called cosmogenic nuclides. So basically um, we went down to collect rock samples right next to the Vanderford Glacier, and these rock samples are in, in regions that aren't ice-covered, um, but that have been ice-covered in the past, over the past few thousand years. And so basically, as the glacier kind of retreats and thins, um, it exposes these rocks to the sun, and then um, they get exposed to cosmic rays, which can actually change um, the chemical composition of the rocks. And we can use that chemical composition to, to um, investigate how the glacier has changed in the past by um, dating um, when it was first exposed to cosmic rays. So we can build up a picture by collecting rocks at different elevations, for example. We can build up a picture of how um, the glacier has thinned over time. And so that's what we were doing. And it sounds, it sounds um, pretty romantic and, and very, you know, exciting, and um, it definitely is. But in reality, what we're, we're doing when we're down there is using um, a big uh, corer to collect cores and also an angle grinder and chisels to, to chisel out parts of the rocks that we then um, pop in bags and, and take back with us to, or bring back with us to Australia. Yeah, I, I'm, I can imagine, too, the, just the conditions. I mean, you, you would have been down there in the, the sort of summery months in the, the warmer period for Antarctica, but the conditions must be pretty harsh right next to, you know, such a substantial glacier as well. What's that like? Yeah, I was a little bit 
uncertain about how cold it would be because I'm a I'm definitely a fair weather Antarctic expeditioner you know <laughs> as scientists we really do we work mainly in the summer and um and so I was a bit nervous about um, the really, really strong cold winds that you get off this kind of the mm. glacier. They're called catabatic winds and they um, travel close to the surface of the glacier and, and, and funnel down from um, uh, inland of the continent where it's really, really cold. So, so it can be quite cold with those winds. But we actually were really fortunate to have excellent weather. It was, you know, between negative 10 and zero degrees most days. Um, it was not that windy at all. Um, and so you actually get a little bit hot sometimes when you're working doing that, <laughs> collecting rocks. But we, we did have one day where um, there was a, a blizzard that stopped us from going out into the field. But otherwise, the conditions were really, really pretty perfect. Mm. And but, you know, it's... It, <clears throat> oh, sorry. I was no, just no, going to say it's also a little bit concerning because um, it, it's so warm, and I don't know if you've you've paid attention to um, what's been happening, but we've we've had a real heat wave across mm. large parts of Antarctica in the last few days, where temperatures are not up to more than twenty degree, twenty thirty degrees Celsius warmer than what they usually are, and that's incredibly concerning. Yeah, indeed. And once you've got all the samples back to the University of Wollongong, you know, I mean, obviously you're going to look at what's happened in the past and so forth with those, but presumably this is a long-term project. So are there multiple trips ahead of you in order to sort of build up that sort of timeline of events that are currently going on? I know the project's about seven years in, in total, but um, does this mean you, you'll, you'll sort of head back and get more more samples or is that more the um, – so that you've got that historical part now and, and now it's more about the modelling? Um, so my colleague Rich at Monash, um, he will be analysing the samples over the next year or so with um, a team of um, uh, PhD students and, and other students. We – for the Vanford Glacier – this is this is the main package of work looking at in the past that's that's kind of complete. But now we'll be doing some more field work down there, looking at um, how it's currently responding to ocean melting, for example. So trying to work out how warm the, the ocean waters under the Vanderford Ice Shelf actually are and how that's um, impacting current melt rates. Um, but then um, for the rock samples, as part of the broader Safe project, there will be um, a focus in different regions of East Antarctica. So. Um, the team um, led by my boss, Andrew McIntosh at Monash as well, is, is going down to Mawson this year and, and um, then we're hoping to go to a, a few different regions yeah. um, over the course of the next seven years. No, it's very cool. I mean, I was reading the other day and I'm not sure, you know, how how um, well-known this stuff is, but there's there seems to almost be a competition between various countries as to who can get the oldest core sample from Antarctica because, you know, you, you know there's, a, there's a certain difficulty in doing that. You know, the further down you go, the, the further back you go. Um, but, you know, there, there's almost like a, a bit of a space race in terms of who can get the oldest <laughs> core. I'm not sure how Australia is going at the moment in that, but there seems to be some incredible sort of um, work going on there and really looking back a long way and getting atmospheric samples as a result of that from you know such a long you know over such a protracted period of time it's extraordinary have you have you, have you come across much of that um, i'm not no i'm not involved in the ice coring um but it's a really interesting really interesting scientific question so yeah australia is um currently ramping up its work trying to collect a million year ice core along but working alongside other countries mm. too so it's quite a, a big um international collaboration and yeah. yeah it'd be really interesting to see what comes out of 
that over the next decade. Yeah, very cool stuff. All right, Felicity, hang in there for a sec. I'm going to chat to Crystal now because as much as glaciers are interesting – I was reading through uh, the work that, that Crystal Randall does, and I have to say, like, this this whole idea of what the environment looks down in Antarctica, I think most people have this image of just ice as far as the eye can see. But, of course, this is not true. And, and I think, um, Crystal, looking at your work, I mean, you, you talk about essentially what – I loved your reference here, I think, the forests of Antarctica, which you refer to as essentially the moss that grows in Antarctica. Tell us, tell us about what sort of – what that means you know when we think of forest we think of very vertically large structures but moss is not so talk us through what you find down there in antarctica yeah so mosses they do function as like a forest um in antarctica and so they basically inhabit ice-free areas in antarctica and um it's kind of the opposite of where felicity's working she's working with the glaciers i'm working in ice-free areas because i'm targeting vegetation um and these ice-free areas make up only about um, 0.4% of the area of Antarctica. So it's such a small percentage of the area, but um, we do expect that they're going to expand and um, sort of play more of a role in the future. But um, even though there's such a small area that's ice-free, it's actually where almost all of the terrestrial biodiversity lives in Antarctica. So that includes the mosses, um, but it also includes things like lichens and algae, um, fungi and microbes and tardigrades. And a lot of that lives within the moss beds. Um, And so it basically is like a little forest. There's lots of things living in there. Um, They they are vertical structures. So the, the moss shoots um, are about, you know, well, they, they differ in their height depending on how old they are, but usually they're about five to 10 centimeters tall. Um, and they have like a little sort of canopy at the top, which is a few, a few millimeters each year that's green. And that's the part that's photosynthesizing. Um, and so, yeah, like they are just like a sort of micro forest with a, with a canopy that's only five or 10 centimeters off the ground. And and when you say canopy, I mean, what do you mean exactly by that? Because when we, when I sort of envision a canopy in a forest, I sort of realise that there's sort of a gap in a way, and then there's this structure at the top with a whole lot of, whole lot of biodiversity that you know someone walking on the ground may not have expected. What, what what's that look like? That sort of vertical structure in terms of you know the moss, because you know it is still you know relatively small. Yeah. So like moss is um, what we kind of experience moss to be is sort of like a cushion type thing or a a turf almost but that's made up of like individual shoots and there's just millions and millions of individual shoots that are all squashed together and they need each other to survive and they form these large colonies almost um yeah but basically each each shoot has little leaves coming off it um and each year it will grow um new leaves at the top and so they're sort of growing in annual layers on top of each other vertically um and that's how the shoot grows so they don't grow sideways they sort of just grow vertically um all next to each other sort of all in sync um and yeah so because of that the canopies at the top and that those are the new leaves for each year and those are the green leaves that are photosynthetically active and um, that's where the plant's metabolizing. And then a lot of the tissue below that just becomes support tissue um, mm. so that can keep growing up taller. Yeah. And, you know, when, when we talk about forests, of course, we know that there is a substantial difference in the sort of meteorological environment as a result of the forest being in place. What does that look like in the case of mosses? 
That's a really good question. And um, that's something that I'm really interested in. So basically we do expect in a forest, um, like a a large forest, that there is going to be a microclimate under that canopy um, because it's filtering out light. It's um, trapping sort of humid air. Um, and it's just it's protecting things under there from um, wind exposure and things like that. And it's much the same in a moss canopy as well. So um, the moss canopy is usually, um, you know, 10 to 15 degrees warmer than the air temperature in Antarctica. So it's really good at holding and conducting heat. Um, it's, it traps a really humid layer of, of air in there as well, which helps the mosses themselves to retain water. So it reduces evaporation. Um, yeah, and, and so the denseness of the moss, um, the moss community all packed together also protects the leaves from wind exposure as well. So there is a really um, prominent microclimate that goes on in the moss canopy um, and that also supports all the things that live in there as well because if we think about, um, you know, fungi and microinvertebrates and things like that, they, they um, function better in warmer environments. So, um, you know, having... having the mosses sort of conduct that warm environment for them mm. is really useful. Now, one of the things I thought was fascinating in, in the information you sent through is that part of the project you're working on is work that's been done by your colleague, Sharon Robinson. That ha- Sharon yeah. has been looking at these mosses and I, I suppose monitoring these mosses for, for some 25 years. That, that sounds extraordinary. I mean, she must have an incredible sort of, I guess, historical timeline of what that moss coverage and type looks like after that period, yeah? Yeah, exactly right. So she um, she's extremely passionate about Antarctic mosses um, and she's been going down there leading research for 25 years um, and she's been monitoring the same, um, the same plots of moss for 25 years um, every time she goes down there. And basically what that research has revealed is that um, the, the region is drying out um, and there's been, in response to that, the moss communities and the species that make up those communities are shifting towards species that prefer those drier environments. Um, and she's also been able to, to detect that there's a larger proportion of the mosses over time that are experiencing um, some kind of stress. So they're, they're giving off um, environmental stress signals in the form of pigments that we can um, observe and measure as well. So um, plants and mosses use um, pigments so um, things like carotenoids and other other red pigments called anthocyanins. Um, a lot of these pigments are found in our foods, but they can also be used to protect um, plants against environmental stresses. So things like drought um, and um, high light environments and things mm. like that. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, it's amazing having that that long term, longitudinal study data to be able to look back and see the change because it's it you know it really is such a a gem to have so much of that information over such a you know decadal sort of time frame. And you you obviously went down there and you you grabbed a few samples of moss. I'm assuming while you were there. And how do you like what what do you do in terms of examination of those samples? Um, to, you know that you brought back. Yeah, so basically what what I did when I went down this season is um, I was measuring their microclimates, so that that canopy temperature across the moss beds, because that that varies quite significantly across the moss beds based on um, the little, they form these little mountains and valleys, um, basically. So like the moss turf itself is like, um, 
like I said, about five or 10 centimetres thick. And it's constantly undergoing cycles of freezing and thawing. And so it's always expanding and contracting. And then that that's a process that we call cryotubation, but it basically warps the moss bed itself. And so that creates these little little mountains and little valleys. And just like a normal mountain range, um, you know, having having different slopes and aspects and different elevation changes the the range of temperatures that we see across that whole that whole sort of mountain range. And there's a lot of variation in temperatures. And so, like if you were on um, the south side of a an actual mountain, then you might experience you know quite mild temperatures. The, the light's not too harsh, and you, you might have like rainforest vegetation. Um, but if you just popped over the ridge onto the north side, it would be um, noticeably warmer and there would be a change in the vegetation, you know, maybe mm. eucalypts or something like that. So it's much the same for moss beds in Antarctica, but just on a much smaller scale. But, um, you know, mosses on the north and south facing slopes of um, of these little micro mountains that they make can be up to 20 degrees different temperatures at the same point in time. Um, and so that's something that's really important for us to understand and to be able to predict across the moss beds um, and that's what my work focuses on. So I went down there and I um, put out a whole bunch of tiny little microclimate sensors um, and I wedged them in the moss canopy. So just in the top two millimetres of the of the moss shoots um, and pinned them in place at different positions across um, the mountains and valleys that they create. Um, and so that data I'm going to use to um, develop a model to predict the canopy temperatures and the microclimate and how much evaporation is occurring from the surface and things like that. Um, and I also did, like you said, I took um, some moss samples as well. Um, and so those are sort of paired along with the temperature data that I've collected. And so that will help me sort of make links between um, what warmer microenvironments are there and what species um, exist in those warmer microenvironments versus the cooler ones. Um, and also what kind of stress pigments there um they're exhibiting. So are the ones in warmer environments more stressed or are they actually doing better? Are the ones in colder environments more stressed? So because they can be stressed from being too warm or too cold. Yep. Oh, look, it's super cool stuff. I, I had no idea of the complexity of these moss environments, Crystal. So it's great hearing about this. I wish we could send you out to schools and you know teach kids. Mosses are cool kids. You know, you've heard about forests, but mosses are, are like little microforests in themselves. I, I don't think many people will be aware of just how complex these environments are and how much information they can yield. So thanks so much for telling us all about that. I think it's really it's really cool stuff, and I, I, I can just I can imagine these little sensors going into these moss and you know sending you back data for a long long time into the future and just you know keeping on top of what's going on there and as you say hopefully there won't be a whole lot more moss in the future but i suspect there will be um through the you know inability to take action on on climate change that we're also aware of uh crystal and felicity it's been great talking to you both i think just just before we go what was the trip like going down there was did you get a nice smooth ride or that was there a couple of days where you kind of had to bunker down and you know hope for the best Oh, the- we actually we actually got to fly down, so oh. it's about a four and a half hour flight from Hobart to Casey's station. <laughs> Outrageous! Yeah. All, my, all good. My my, <laughs> my envy just went up even further. Um, that's how I want to get down there because I hear that I hear the boat trip can be a little bit queasy for for some or for all. Um, 
yeah. as, you're, as you're heading down. But uh, look, that's great to hear that they flew you down. Excellent. Well, um, good luck to both of you on this ongoing research. It's great to hear so much amazing stuff going on uh, down there in Antarctica. It's such a complex environment. I think people forget just how complicated the environment is down there and how much there is to study. Uh, Crystal, uh, get back to writing up immediately yeah. after the show. Uh, You've got to get that done. Uh, but I'm sure you'll be finishing up real soon and you can you can whack those extra uh, letters at the front of your name. Felicity, thanks so much for, for talking to us as, as well and good luck both of you with the ongoing work. Thanks for having us, Shane. Folks, <laughs> that was a really great discussion there with these guys. Um, that was Dr. Felicity McCormick, a senior lecturer and Antarctic researcher at Monash University, and Crystal Randall, soon to be doctor as well, who is a lecturer at the University of Wollongong. And all of this work is part of the Antarctic Researchers Group, SEAF, which is Securing Antarctica's Environmental Future, uh, a good project that's being funded at the moment. We're going to take a break for some station announcements. And when we come back, uh, Chris KP will be teaching us something. I'm not sure where yet. He told me earlier in the week, but I've forgotten because I'm, you know, that's just me. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. It's uh, time to hand over to Chris KP. We've got Lauren back on the line. Hello, Lauren. Still in your closet? Hello. I'm <laughs> still in the closet. Still in the closet. <laughs> there it is. I don't know what to say about that, Chris. But uh, you're talking about <laughs> quantum biology. So yeah. um, if you haven't had a stiff drink in the last two no, – I shouldn't say that. Have a cup of coffee, folks. Um, maybe. Because this could hurt. So, it may be, yeah. And it, it occurs to me now that, you know, it's a Sunday morning. Uh, as it happens, I <laughs> did have a – Unusually late night. Uh, yeah. Could there be a better time to discuss something mind-bending? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and in fact, it's not, and it's not just us that think this. Um, so, quantum biology, uh, for for those of you who are trying to be clever about this, and I advise you not to, is um, it's the combination of quantum physics and biology. It is that simple, except it's not that simple. In fact, um, uh, Richard Feynman was um, once quoted as having said that if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics. <laughs> I've actually used that. I've written that on many exam papers I did yeah. over the years. I don't understand this question, which is supported by Richard Feynman. Yeah, it's such a good, yeah. such a good logic. <laughs> I think it was, and I think it was uh, Niels Bohr said that anyone who can contemplate quantum mechanics and not feel dizzy hasn't really understood it. Right. <laughs> so so that's the that's the territory we're going to step into today. Okay. Um, so basically, the quantum world kicks in when you get down to a small enough scale. Now, yep. if you think about biological scientists as a huge umbrella group, um, ecologists study whole systems of interrelated uh, inter- inter- uh, organisms, etc. Um, if you pull it down a little bit in scale, you get to a community, which is one species operating together, mm-hmm. more or less. Then there's the one individual organism. Then there's an organ, which is part of that. Then mm-hmm. there's the tissue as part of that. So you're getting smaller and smaller and more and more focused in some ways, but that's not the point here. Mm. The rules of how all that stuff fits together are the same. Right. You're just focusing your attention. When you get down to an atomic and subatomic level, the rules go out the window. The rules that we really do take for granted because every experience we have yeah, follows them are completely they're just not a thing anymore you've crossed into the into the um the, the other world if you like so um things that would behave like particles you know bouncing off stuff and as as discrete um uh, identifiable entities start behaving like waves uh mm. if they can you can have things that are in more than one place at once at the same time uh things that are in no way connected physically or by any kind of force can influence each other somehow across great distances. So all these, the craziest things in the world. Now, life 
as we know it, um, has been on the planet for about three and a half billion years. Okay. So if you consider evolution, if you will, um, evolution has had a long time to do stuff. It's had plenty of time to try things out. Um, and it has been trying stuff out. I think, and correct if I'm wrong here, because I, I didn't check this, but I think I think photosynthesis is about a billion years ago, I think, as we started photosynthesizing, I think, al- bacteria and algae and stuff, and mm. then it caught on because it's great, right? Yeah, it's good. Photosynthesis yeah. is the buzz. So, and, and to, as a quick brush up on photosynthesis, you take some carbon dioxide out of the air, you take some water out of the ground, although that came from the air too, but that's another story, and you put that together in sunlight in a plant, and the plant is able to make glucose, essentially mm. food, and give off oxygen. Yeah. By the way, it's a reminder, folks, that next time you see a plant, you see a you know there's a big tree, for example, or moss, if you prefer. Um, that matter, that stuff that you can hug or stroke or spring up and down on, um, that was once mainly air. Mm. It's the most fantastic concept. Remind yourself about that. This is a little bit of awesome going on. <laughs> the thing is, though, photosynthesis, we're jealous of photosynthesis because it is so efficient. And we can't do it. We cannot do it. So, yeah, yeah your very best solar panels are just embarrassingly inefficient compared yeah. to what plants yeah. have been doing. And people are trying. They've been trying for quite a while. If we can crack it, mm. happy days. It's yeah. extraordinary. I mean, the alternative is just to plant a tree. Yes, True. But you need a damn lot of them to fix the current problem, and we can't plant that many. No, that's we haven't got enough planet. Uh, no. that's which is disappointing, yeah. I suppose. Should yeah. have thought of that before we ruined it, shouldn't we? Mm. Um, let's not get down yet. <laughs> Hang on, there's time for that. <laughs> Come back. Anyway, so the theory is that light enters the plant cell. Yep, a chlorophyll picks up a bit of light, um, and that 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 particle of light, that that um, packet of light, if you like, then has to find its way to what's called the reaction center. So it's been absorbed. That bit's easy. And for a long time, we thought that what happened is the reaction center was somewhere in the, in the, in the tissue, and this bit of energy would just bounce around in there randomly until it found it, right. which would work. Eventually, that would work. But it's not efficient, is it? Mm. It's really horribly inefficient. And it's not just inefficient to the point of being slow. Every time it jumped like that, it would actually lose energy. Right. A little bit. So it would actually become – you'd have less impact from having this energy brought in from the sun. It turns out that it's okay, don't panic, that's not what happens. Hmm. And this is where the quantum kicks in. Remember I was telling you that stuff can behave, that is, you you know, by any other measure, particle-like, can behave wave-like, and things can be in more than one place at a time? So this is what appears to be happening in plant cells. Sunlight comes in as a photon, or as photons, discrete packets of energy, particles if you like. They go into the plant, and at that point, they start to behave like a wave. So they basically go through all the possible pathways to the reaction centre rather than one at a time. And then, of course, if you do it all at once, one of those all at ones is going to be the place you need to be. Mm. And so then all the energy goes straight to that point there. The plant goes, thanks very much. Let's make some glucose. But it is that level of efficiency that kind of can't be done any other way. This is the only explanation we have for the efficiency we're seeing in how plants deal with sunlight. So the little quantum calculators, basically. Yeah. So yeah. every, and it's not even every plant, every green, you know, any, chlor- every, any chlorophyll containing cell in a mm. plant is doing this. So there is quantum calculation going on all over the world. The thing that blows the minds of a lot of quantum scientists about this stuff is that if you are studying quantum physics... You have to be really controlling, like really cold, mm. really simple systems. You can't do – and then this is going on in, you know, warm places, wet places, complicated places, places where the environment shifts and changes all the time. D- dirty. It's messy. Yeah, d- it's dirty crazy. Messy. Yeah. <laughs> dirty yeah. messy. So there you go. So quantum physics is, is already a thing inside plant cells. Um, 
And that's how photosynthesis happens. So it's not just, it's not a gimmick. It's essential. Mm. You are alive because of photosynthesis. And that's because of quantum, which is an extraordinary, extraordinary thing to think about. Perhaps one of the reasons why we can't mimic it so readily, because well, we're, we're not trying, we're not using quantum systems to mimic it. We're using more linear well, that's Newtonian systems. Thing. This is the interesting thing. At the, the, the mimicking of, of quantum systems is hard. Mm. And that's, I mean, to me, <laughs> uh, so obviously this is taken as gospel. Um, to me, I reckon that's almost like the next big hurdle. If we get to the point where we can start to control this stuff in different environments, then there's a whole world. Because, again, we were given new rules. It's like, so you've been operating inside, you know, rules 1 to 10. Here's 11 to 15. You yep. can do a whole bunch of other stuff that you just didn't even think of before. Uh. So, there's a, yeah, there's a freedom that comes with this. Um, and which is one of the reasons that I, when you were introducing this at the start, I can't decide whether you want a cup of coffee or you want a stiff drink. Because in some ways... You want to be as free of your imagination or as free in your imagination as you possibly can be. So there's be. probably a third alternative that I've offered that involves mushrooms. Well, it depends on yeah. where you are now. Yeah, <laughs> what, what, what happened last night? What yeah. state are you in now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, there is another example that I would like to have a crack at. Um, should, we, should we have a break and a breather first? Yeah, I think people might need just a very quick moment just sure. to... Um, you know, As do I. Vomit, whatever, whatever they want to do, um, because it's heavy stuff. And Chris KP, you're taxing us. So, folks, here's a couple of very important uh, triple R announcements just to cleanse the palate, as it were, uh, before I, I let Chris back off his lead. Yeah. Triple R. Uh, we are back, and Chris KP is talking all about quantum biology. Uh, Dr. Lauren, you're a biology person. Do you have a question? That minute gave me time to sort of ponder all of this. One of the questions I had for you guys is, you know, is part of the reason that we can't replicate this sort of complex system is because we don't have the laboratory set up? Is that one of the challenges? For quantum stuff? Well, it's, I mean, we can do some pretty fancy quantum stuff at the moment. I think that the the real question is, what are you actually trying to replicate? So if it's just two particles interacting in quantum yeah. systems, we can do that. And we can actually do that quite well. Um, but as Chris said, we need incredibly controlled conditions to do it and keep the system yeah. stable, which is one of the reasons why it's been so hard to construct quantum-type computers, because that mm. stability and the interference that happens in the quantum world is so profound. But the idea of you know, a complex process being mimicked is, is something in, yeah, almost and, entirely different. And the thing is, as soon as you interact mm. with it, it becomes, it more so at a quantum scale, it becomes messier. You, mm. you start influencing things in ways you don't really understand and don't want to do. So that's, that's part mm. of the problem too, I think, that it's, it's hard to sort of keep it pure, if you like. You can't, it's hard to observe it. With, you know, Schroeder just mm. says hi. It's, it's hard to observe it without actually influencing what's going on as well. Um, and we, we can do stuff. I mean, there, there's people have um, demonstrated for ages. He's now been demonstrating tunneling. We can see, you know, you, you send a, a, a packet of, um, of you know, uh, uh, particles towards a, what should be an impermeable surface, and most of them stop or bounce back. Some get through. And we can control that. But part of the difficulty, of course, is that you're not dealing necessarily with matter. You're sometimes dealing with probabilities of matter being in particular places. And so that's, that becomes hard to control. We haven't learned how to control that. And I think that's part of the problem with the rules. The rules change. And if you get a new rule, it's like, well, I don't know what to do with this now. Yep. I have no experience working with this rule. Yeah. Uh, so how I do mean, I the, do it? And the quantum computing scenario is an interesting one there. Like, you know, a normal yeah. computer has a one and a zero. Yeah. And you have a device that works that out. 
one yeah, or zero. This is one or the other. In, in, a, in a quantum world, it's one or zero or anything in between all at the same time. Yeah. And that, that's what gives it its power. Yeah. But for us conceptually, it's like, no, I, I want it to be one or zero. I can't handle it being mm. everything at the same time. That doesn't make sense to me. But that's actually, that's one of the, the beauties of the quantum world. That, it, that's exactly right. That is exactly right. It's the capacity to think differently, which we don't normally do. <laughs> because we don't need to. That's, <laughs> we that's don't need to. This is the problem. We don't, need, yep. um, we don't need quantum mechanics in most of our life. Mm. We had just simply don't. It's when you want to do something different or understand other things yep. Yep. That beyond your day-to-day experience. I, th- I think the two most or two or three most amazing areas of physics are, you know, relativity, mm-hmm. totally. um, you know, so gravitational mm-hmm. stuff around. Mm-hmm. But but that's on the large scale. Again, we don't exist on that scale, so no. we, we don't see it. So the idea of a gravity wave because yeah. Chris walked by me, <laughs> as much as I'd like to use that. <laughs> That statement on him um, doesn't make any sense. And similarly, you know, things once we get to very small scales, um, you know, even if you start putting layers of gold on the surface, for example, once you get to a certain thinness, yeah, it no longer is the color gold. That's right. Yeah, and that kind of with a what? Hang yeah. on, what? But you know, this is when we get into those two realms. It's outside of our experience and the That's way right. in which we and engage with the world. And we've evolved to engage the world in that way. So this is not yep. just something that I, you know, we thought of and made a plan about. It's, mm. it's deeply embedded in us. Yep. Speaking of deeply embedded in us, we have known for a long time that birds can navigate over long distances and that they use the Earth magnetic field as yep. as, a, as part of their guide. The problem is we don't really know how that actually works. Uh, birds don't appear to have a compass organ or anything like that. That, that doesn't seem to be a thing. So the question has always been more, so what are they doing? How are they sensing this? Mm. You know, is that, are they sensing it or is it something you know, more complicated than that? So the, the, the theory was posited that, well, there must be some sort of biochemical process going on that is affected by the Earth's magnetic field. And that makes total sense because, you know, a living organism like a bird is, you know, its entire entity is just a series of incredibly complicated biochemical mm. processes, if you want to put it that way. Um, the problem is, though, that biochemical processes as a rule and chemical reactions aren't affected by magnetic fields. Some are not very weak magnetic fields, like the Earth. The Earth's magnetic field is piss weak. So it's <laughs> unlikely to affect... Yeah. It's not going to make and bake, break chemical bonds. That's yep. just not a thing. Yep. But the thing is, if the chemical context, if you like, was already really vulnerable, like it was really close to doing something if it was on that precipice, maybe a really piss weak magnetic field might be able to put... Maybe... So, long story cut short, turns out that in the eyes of birds, um, there is an enzyme called cryptochrome. In fact, we've got it in our eyes too. It's one of the, it's, it's tied to um, to uh, circadian rhythms. It's one of the things that actually helps you pick up light and not light and stuff, which is why blind people can can still get jet lagged because they have this stuff in their eyes. Long story, whole whole other whole other story for another time. Anyway, um, turns out that if a photon of light from, I don't know, the sun, for example, goes in a bird's eye, um, it can actually, it, it'll whack into this cryptochrome and it will knock free an electron. So now, and that electron will jump on somewhere else. So now you've got this free, and free electrons are not a cool thing in mm. chemistry. It's a very unstable way to be. So now you've got two of them because you've knocked one out where it was in balance. They was in balance with another one. And now they're out there somewhere um, in, in this bird's eye in a very unstable state. And the thing is, they could be in more than one state. And as you were touching on before, they can be in more than one state at the same time. Mm. And those two electrons are now intrinsically linked. They are what we call entangled. They are quantum entangled. So what happens to one will influence what happens to the other. And it's a, it's a chemical state that the bird is just desperately trying to get back to not that. 
So ultimately, this is how they can detect the magnetic field of the Earth because it's enough to, to force them into one way or another. It's all about the odds of how that chemical action flows on from after you've knocked out electrons. Wild stuff. Thanks, Chris KP. Uh, folks, uh, next up is Eat It, which should <laughs> cleanse your pelt in more ways than one. i got to lie down. you got to lie down. Uh, me too. Uh, Dr. Lauren, great talking to you once again from your closet. Good to see you. Yes. Also, my, my brain is exploding, Chris. That was great. Apologies. <laughs> We've uh, had some great guests on today talking about Antarctica, folks. A big thank you to them. Thanks to Liv, who's right in front of me for a change, doing our Twitter feed. Uh, Chris KP, always a pleasure. Totally. Thank you. And, folks, uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again next week. Have a great Sunday. Here comes Edith. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.